in life, there's lots of tests that we go through and trials. The ones that make it through are the ones that believe in what they're doing and they keep on taking steps towards their vision and eventually it becomes reality. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. If you're paying attention, you know that you only make money when you work. It might be great money, but it's dependent on you. The information on this podcast will help you solve that. We interview experts and provide analysis into financial freedom through commercial real estate. Why? To help physicians like you thrive. Let's dive in. Welcome to Surgeon Syndicate. This is your host, Dr. Michael McManus, and we are here today with Mark Ferris. Mark is the founder of Ferris Capital Partners, which was founded to help American and Canadian investors buy multifamily assets in Florida and South Carolina, thus providing an incredible investment opportunity combined with exceptional service. Mark and his wife, Joanne, co-founded Ferris Team Real Estate Brokerage in 2007, turning it into a mega real estate team that has transacted over $8 billion of real estate sales and set record successes in Canada. Mark has expanded the real estate brokerage to Florida. And to date, Mark owns and operates over $160 million in multifamily, single family, and commercial assets. He contributes much of his success to playing hockey in Canada, USA, and Sweden, as well as the success in real estate to being committed to excellent and going full out. Mark, welcome to the show. Great to be here, Mike. Thanks for that long intro there. I'll work on cutting that down by about a third or two thirds. Yeah. It's a good intro though. It flows. Sometimes I jump through intros and I was like, wait, this one's good. I'm going to try and read the whole thing through and see how I do with that. So you did great. So tell me a little bit more about yourself and your history and how you got to this point. Yeah, you heard there. I was a hockey player prior to real estate. So I grew up just north of Toronto. So a Canadian boy, like most Canadian boys do, right? Play hockey. So played a little bit, a couple of seasons over in Sweden, down in the States, was put on waivers. And then I thought, I always loved real estate investing. What better way to learn about real estate than to become an agent? And so jumped into real estate, struggled the first six months to a point where Joanna came home and she's like, Mark, like I didn't have any money for groceries today sort of approach. So we struggled the first six months, as many of your listeners can probably appreciate when they first start out. And then we just pushed through and then we started building our team when we grew it to the largest real estate team in Canada for transactions and volume. And then along the way, I had been buying real estate. So single family properties were buying our office buildings. And then the smaller multifamily stuff, 6, 10, 14 units, But there's a huge problem that was happening in Canada is the deals stopped cash flowing. And so right around the Toronto area, you just couldn't find deals that would actually make more money and income than expenses. And the other problem up there was the fact that there's rent control. So we'd go in and buy a sixplex and rents would be $650 a month per bedroom and market rent was $1,650 for example. So they're $1,000 short. And so we'd go in and offer cash for keys, 10, 20, $30,000 per unit. But the challenge there was they weren't taking it. And so it was very hard to execute on a business plan. So that was a problem. And so the solution really came when I started looking down in Florida at real estate down here and that there's no rent control and deals actually cash flow. And I thought to myself, well, what if we get into the big boy stuff, the 100 unit deals? And what if we solve the problem, not only for myself personally, but also for 
other Canadians that are struggling with the same problem? And could we return better returns to them than if they were to do everything on their own and not such a great market? And so that's our overall thesis. We think we can and tie together the service that we learned on the real estate team side to looking after these investors and really tie first class service mentality around that. So that was the birth of Ferris Capital there. That's awesome. So we see a lot of that now as the interest rate environment change and things have been shifting to where deals don't cash flow. And sometimes you see stuff on the market that's negative by a bunch. How does that work out over time? Or what have you seen in Canada? Because who wants to buy a building that you have to keep putting money into? I just kind of wonder, like, how does this all work when things are selling at those prices? Well, a lot of investors, they're looking at that now and they're either one just holding on and they're feeding the deal, right? But I mean, that only works for so long. They're hoping it's going to go up. And I think eventually it will. I mean, because there's a supply and demand issue that just has not been fixed. Even in Canada, I know in the US, we're short on homes. But a lot of investors are getting out of the market now and they're going elsewhere. So they're either going kind of east, west or south. I chose south. And the reality is, is there's emerging markets you can invest in and there's markets that aren't emerging, right? And so I go back to Kiyosaki's book, as most of your listeners, anybody investing in real estate, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, I know that's probably one of the most referenced books on any sort of investment (laughs) podcast. But I mean, it's true. I mean, invest in assets that put money in your pocket. And that's the reality is if it doesn't cash flow, then it's not classified in his terms as an asset, which... In a market like this, where you start to see interest rates go up and you're having to feed the deal, you realize the wisdom in that. And so for me, I'm a huge proponent now of that. And I like cash flow, but I also like appreciation. That's why I love these emerging markets we're investing in. So when you talk about emerging markets, tell me more about what markets you're investing in now. So, I mean, we like Florida overall from the fact that there's no rent control. It's basically a country within a country. I mean, it's what the 18th largest if it was a country from GDP in the world, I mean, it's over a trillion dollars now. It's, it's huge. But let's say Tampa, for example, it's one of her favorite markets. I mean, affordability is super strong. So affordability as in anything, 35% or less of one's income going towards rent. But a lot of these areas, like 25 to like 33% of the average income is going towards rent, which is super affordable. There's no state tax there. So tenants keep more money in their pocket, 7% sales tax, strong leadership that offers incentives for businesses to move in. Lots of businesses moving into these areas, which brings population, which they need beds, right? So Mm -hmm. I think these are the markets that we really like investing in. And of course, there's pockets within Tampa. The deal that we have currently right now is in Largo. And these little sub-markets there, if you find them, they can be really strong. I saw something recently that Tampa was one of the only places in the country that the office market was still strong. And is there anything special going on in Tampa or is it just kind of a place in Florida that has room to grow? Because like Miami, I went to Miami for the first time recently for a meeting. Then I realized I'm like, wow, Miami is stuck. I mean, the South End is the end of Florida. You got the ocean on one side, the Everglades on the other, and kind of Fort Lauderdale Metro continues to creep north, but Miami can only grow so much. Is there more room in Tampa? Is that what's going on on that side of the state? Tampa seems to be like a mecca in the sense that it's affordability is a real thing. And so businesses love moving into these areas that are more affordable. 
I mean, Tampa, for example, there's a lot of infill area there. So unlike, say, Orlando, Orlando has lots of land where there can be a lot of development, which we prefer Tampa over Orlando for that reason. If you look at Tampa, a lot of it is covered by water, right? So, I mean, there's just such a vast array. If you look at the different industries within Tampa all the way around, I mean, it's very diverse from an employment standpoint. So, I mean, when you have all these businesses moving in and there's affordability there, they know that they can fill those seats and not have to overpay them. Like, so for example, Jacksonville, just because I've recently pulled this number compared to San Francisco, you can make $200,000 in income in San Francisco and make 100,000 in Jacksonville and have the same lifestyle. Like you have to make twice as much in San Francisco to have the same lifestyle, same house, same like living expenses and everything as Jacksonville. And so that's a real thing. Like if you're going in as an employer, if you're going to San Francisco, you have to basically be ready to pay your staff like double, right? That's generally one of the largest line items for these businesses moving in. So from a diversity standpoint, I think that that's also a very strong thing as well, that they're not only relying on one, but I think that, you know, it's really those businesses moving into those areas. I think strong business incentives and also the affordability aspect. So a lot of the people listening to the show are doctors or other people who are passive investors. So you love Florida as a passive investor who's not full on into the real estate industry. When they're looking at people to invest with or places to invest, how should they look at doing their research and their due diligence and where they want to put their money? Are there any resources that would help somebody kind of figure these things out for themselves to kind of say, I like Mark and I like how he's talking about Florida because I like Tampa too. What are some of the ways that or that you help your investors kind of see that wisdom? Yeah. So I think with any sort of, if it was a passive and you're coming in on the, and you're working with like an active operator, um, like yourself, right? Which I think that most operators, they're going to do all their due diligence and pull all their statistics and be able to provide that all for the passive investor. To me, I think that's one of the biggest things. You can go and verify the information that's provided. And I think that's actually a really good thing that the operator will provide. Okay. Here's where I checked up all these data points. I think that's fair that you can go and check it. But I think obviously the operator providing these data points from affordability, what's the neighborhood income, what's the new housing starts that are coming into a particular area so that you don't take over possession. All of a sudden your rents get smashed because you got a bunch of new product coming in and they're having to lower their rents in order to compete. And that just presses down compresses your rentals. So I think that getting a really good operator, a lot of this information will be provided. Otherwise, you're having to go hunt down many different kind of websites to go figure it out. So I think going to the operator and actually asking these questions that are coming up, those data points really should be available there that that work's been done for them. Okay. So instead of finding it yourself to check it, talk to the operator, ask for their resources, and then you can go double check the resources. You're not combing the web for random data points, but you're a little more directed in your search. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole benefit of investing with somebody that's doing it because, I mean, just think if they spend 10 hours researching, like these are $1,000 an hour earners, like that's expensive research. So why not go right, say to the source that they've already done it and you can go verify the information in one hour. To me, like 
that's part of the reason why it's a passive approach. But I still think research is important and definitely doing the background on the operator is really important as well. But verifying that information, I think, is if you have those data points, you can then verify that. And I think that can be a lot more useful over time because this is what we do every day, all day. And somebody that's, say, operating on someone like trying to go and compete with a full team that's doing these data points and trying to come up with that same information that's quickly, I think you can take a little bit of a shortcut there and then just verify on that side of it. So in your bio, you talk a little bit about also being in South Carolina. What is it about South Carolina that you like? Yeah. So, I mean, so Charleston in particular, we really like, I mean, Charleston's, it's kind of a sleeper town. Have you ever visited? I have once. So it was probably almost 20 years ago, but man, it's a city with a ton of history. It's a cool place. Yeah, Yeah, it is. It's funny. I went and did one of those tours. One of the best ways when you go to a new city is to do an actual tour. It's Uh funny. I got a photo, I get on the bus and I'm the only... It's like all the seniors and they're all sitting there and they look at me like I'm some weirdo. I'm the only guy taking photos, asking the tour guide all these <laughs> all these questions. Um, uh, yeah, I asked the tour guide a lot of questions, but she came up with all of them. But it's just more so really understanding the good pockets, the bad pockets, what's going on. There's like 50 to 60 people moving to that city a day. So there's a lot of people moving in. It's affordable. We actually have an asset that's coming up. It's 144 units in Charleston. And the reality is, I mean, it's four hours north of Jacksonville, right? It's right on the coast there. It's affordable. We think it's a sleeper town. We think it's going to do really well in the next five years. Yeah. And in the space that I work in a lot, the industrial space, there's a lot going on in that area. And I think Charleston has the largest deep water port outside of like New Jersey. And so there's a lot going on with warehouse and transportation and all that kind of stuff coming in there for like the port for the southern half of the U.S. coming from the Atlantic. So just always looking at when you keep hearing the same places come up over and over again, that start going, huh, there's something real going on down there. Is the affordability for living in Charleston similar to North Florida? Yeah, that's right. And so for us, that rule holds true between under that 35% threshold. After renovation, once we do renovations, the apartment actually needs to be below that 35% threshold. It's kind of like a really good gauge going into any sort of property there that once we do the renovations, it's still going to be affordable there. So we're not pressing the envelope. For example, some of these other areas... Like an hour north of Toronto, for example, they're putting 50% towards rent. That's their average, their income towards rent. Toronto's like 60%. New York, it's like 70% of one's wow. income goes. So when you think about that, it becomes very hard to go in and raise rents when it's so unaffordable. And so you really want to get into these markets that become affordable. And over time, as more and more people get to know them, they'll become less affordable. And then There'll be new markets that pop up, right? And it's this whole cycle. I think David Lindahl wrote about that. He had said there's always an emerging market somewhere. And that's uh, interesting. Yeah. I was just gonna say that I grew up in Colorado and I remember when in the nineties that was Denver. Denver was this great place and it was super cheap compared to the coast. And we were back there recently and it's not cheap anymore. <laughs> now it's been through that cycle. 
So tell me a little about, so this is just fun to learn a little bit about you, a little bit more about your hockey background and how yeah. hockey plays into your business success. Yeah. And so it's funny. You have kids? I do. I do. Yeah. I have daughters. So they're daughters. How old are they? They're uh, 17 and 19. So they're okay. Yeah. So we have three boys. We have 11, 13, and 15 year olds. So actually, down in Florida, because we're spending a good portion of the year down here now. So our oldest, he's 15, and they get their driver's permit when they're 15 down here now. So he's actually driving me around. But him and his youngest brother, actually, all three of them are playing soccer. Two of them are competitive. And it's funny watching them out there when they start losing the game. That's where it's like life lessons kick in. And so it's a really interesting thing to watch. You see some kids rolling around crying and others like yelling at each other. And so that's one of the things, actually, one of my sons, he was getting upset. And I told him after, I said, that's not how we handle losing. It's like winners are not the ones that win all the time. Winners are the ones that when they do lose, they pick their head up and they go back at it again. Winners never quit. Winners don't cry, right? And I just said, like, when you're out there, if you act like that, you know, it makes you look weak in front of all your other teammates. And you got to lead by example. They're watching you. These are lifelong lessons, right? And so generally, it's just like in life, it's tough. I mean, you and I, like, we go through hard things. All the listeners out there, like, the winners are the ones that go through tough periods and they can pick their head up and they're going to go back at it. And that's why Rocky, I love their movies, his movies, right? Because it's like, you just keep on going. You know, when he's talking to his son, I'm not going to repeat it because I'm going to butcher it. But the reality there is, is like winners, no matter how hard you get hit, it's not how hard you get hit. It's how hard you can get hit and keep on going. Right. Yeah. So I think that would be the, one of the big thing is how do you handle challenges and how do you handle that as a team? And how can you rally the troops from a leadership standpoint? And then obviously there's hard work and discipline showing up every day. Right. Yeah, because some days you work for a while without a reward. It's that difference between the entrepreneur and having a job. You show up and you can show up for weeks and you're not getting the paycheck isn't written until you get the deal done. And then it maybe it comes all at once. But if you're not seeing it in between, it can be hard, especially in a dry spell to go, right, we're going to keep pushing this. We believe in our plan. And we're going to work at it until it bears fruit. You know that I think that grittiness is actually it's a key differentiator with successful people is it's funny. We sponsored an event one time and I actually I got to meet Donald Trump. And so regardless if you're a fan of him or not, probably half your listeners love him and the other half don't like him. <laughs> regardless if you like him or not, I mean the reality is he's a very resilient guy. And so when I'm just about to go shake his hand and get a photo, I thought to me, what's the one question you kind of you know it's quick, right? You're not gonna get a lot of time. And I go up to him and I say, we get a picture. I said, yeah, nice to meet you, Mr. Trump. I said, Mr. Trump, I said, you're one of the most resilient guys that I know. I said, how do you become more resilient? You know what he says? Of course. He looks at me, he goes, well, he goes, I just keep on going. <laughs> he said it like it was just so subtle, but there was such wisdom in what he said. When he was down like hundreds of millions of dollars, he didn't give up. He didn't buckle. He dug his way out of there and he just kept on going, right? And so I think that in life, there's lots of tests that we go through and trials. And I think the ones that make it through are the ones that they believe in what they're doing and they keep on 
taking steps towards their vision and eventually it becomes reality. Yeah, and so you just reminded me of a conversation I had with the medical school dean when I was in towards the end of medical school when you have conversations with the dean, but early on. And she was talking about they were doing interviews and the admission process and how they look for some people. They want to admit a few people who have been beaten up by life a little bit. Because as she said, she goes, when you look at most of a med school class, most of them haven't been beaten up a whole lot. When you talk to a group of entrepreneurs, often you find kids who are C students, like they were never the people who were awesome until sometime as an adult, they ground it out and all of a sudden they do great. And everybody's like, what happened with them? Where you get a med school class and a lot of these kids, they were A students in high school and A students in college. And at some point, as things get harder and harder, often they'll have their first crisis in medical school where they flunk a test or things aren't working out the way they're used to. And the dean was like, we want to have a peer group that when somebody falls on their face for the first time in their entire life, if their whole peer group has never fallen down, they're all going to look at them and be like, oh, you know, I don't know what to do. You failed. I've never failed. But if you got a few people in there who can pat them on the back and pick them up and go, hey, that's okay, man. I've been there. You're going to be all right. Keep going. Yeah. So there's part of the leadership you were talking about with your kids. If you've been knocked down a couple of times, you know how to get back up. Yeah. And for sure, when you have somebody there beside you, and that's the power of the team, like sometimes you need a buddy to say, hey, listen, we got this. Like they extend a hand out, right? And they help you up sort of approach. And just as a leader, and sometimes it's hard. You don't have a lot of people to talk to, right? <laughs> you want to show strength and you want to be strong for the team, right? So that's where I think some of these mentorship groups and I think you're with Trevor as well, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Trevor Gregor. And I think that's wise. And I think getting with other peer groups that are doing the same thing you are at uh, mastermind groups, I think is really powerful as well, that you can share some of those challenges and know that you're not the only one going through it. Sometimes that's helpful. That's a great topic. When I look at from the people I know on the entrepreneurial side and the real estate side versus the doctor side, Doctors don't tend to hire coaches or join masterminds as much as business people is my perspective. And I might be way off on that and it might be just my circle, but I think it's something that really for the people who are listening, for the doctors out there, if you're looking to learn a new thing and kind of the Trevor always tells me that came from, I think it's a Tony Robbins thing, turning decades into days that find the right people, get in that right group. And sometimes it costs money to be in that group. I think that's a lot of time doctors are like, well, why should I pay for that? I can go find it on Facebook or, or sorry, like YouTube, and I'm going to go do the research. I'm really good at learning stuff. But often those are the people and the places that you just launch that forward by putting them in your tribe. Well, and the challenge with, say, researching out on your own, you have to know what the right question is. But I found the best mentors don't give you answers. They ask good questions. Do you see the difference there? So it's not an answer. There's wise questions that they ask. And I think the questions are more of the wisdom pieces that you're looking for, because what you think is the problem, a lot of time it isn't even the problem. It's something else. And the byproduct will be that your problem is disappears. But a lot of times you're not looking like if a business is not growing for whatever reason, you may think it's about leads, but it might be about throughput as in like you're getting a lot of people in the hopper, but you're squandering them along the way, or there's holdups along the way. It's like going through the airport, right? You may think that at very first, you're not getting many people showing up at the airport, but if you're having the ticket desk and then you're having huge long lineups, 
And then right before they're boarding the plane, security, there's like multiple people that are getting held up. The reality is it may not be a lead problem. It might be a people or process problem as well. And so that's where I think a good coach or mastermind group can look at and say, well, did you think about this over here? Right. And I think that there's power in that. That's a great point of view. And I think even in medical operations and within a practice, a lot of because they're all employed, not all, but a lot, they leave the management and everything's supposed to be for the business people or the hospital people. But those people don't see what actually is happening within the workflows. And so you start letting somebody establish your workflow, but you're not asking them the questions. They're not going, wait, that workflow doesn't work. And just assuming it's the best thing out there. So I think that's a great, maybe a question Doc should start asking more about why do we do it this way? Not just, it's always the way we've done it. Yeah, that's a great question there to always ask for sure. Curiosity, that's a major gift. But just going back to say like doctors, I think business people, Olympic athletes, doctors, these are all like high performing. You're high performing, right? And so the way that I look at it is, If you're performing at any sort of top elite level, regardless of the industry, you need to be 100% focused and dialed in. And the difference between like first place, second place, and third place, like it's very minimal, right? I mean, think of like a gold medal in a 100 meter race. It's like inches. And so that's where I think that when it comes down to that, if doctors really look at themselves or any sort of top producer, out there, top sales or doctor, I mean, regardless of whatever the profession is, like they all need mentors and trainers. I mean, the reality is, is you wouldn't get to the gold medal unless you had an actual trainer. So I think regardless of whatever you're doing, if you want to do it at an elite level, even from a financial standpoint, you want to grow your financial side, find somebody that's really good at that and then have them mentor you. And you're going to get a way further ahead, way faster than trying to just figure it all out in your own. I think that's great advice. And for even the, we talked about the passive investor versus active investor, that even if you're coming into something new and the holdup, haven't ever invested in real estate or in syndications, is finding a mentor, somebody who's already doing it and saying, hey, help show me the way, tell me the questions to ask, help me learn this process of how to evaluate a passive investment or how to evaluate the person I'm going to trust to run my money to move you down that road faster versus if you're sitting in your silo and maybe that's the problem when you're a busy doc and now you get home and it's eight o'clock and you're like, okay, I'm going to do this research thing that you don't have the people there to kind of bounce those off of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe that's a great place to find some peers who want to do the same thing and say, hey, let's get together. And then you can divide the work and put a few smart people in the same room and they'll figure something out pretty quick. Yeah. I mean, Napoleon Hill in his book, Think and Grow Rich, which if your listeners haven't read that, that's probably one of like the three books I'd suggest to definitely read. He talks about this mastermind concept, right? And so when you put two minds together working towards one challenge, it creates like a third mind, so to speak. And what I mean by that is like two heads are better than one, right? And they're two heads. If they think on a problem individually, they're much stronger if they come together on that because they can make it further faster working as a group, right? So I think if you take that same principle into any sort of goal that you're going after, I mean, it's hard to compete. It's hard to compete against, right? So you might as well stack the odds in your favor. All right. 
That's great. And I want to touch on this a little bit more, but we're going to save it for the second half of our interview here with Mark Ferris. Mark, thank you for being here. This has been great. And please come back and join us for the second half of this interview. We're going to talk more about the mindset. And then we're going to also dig into what makes Mark's operation successful. Thanks for being here and join us on the next episode of Surgeon Syndicate. This has been an episode of Surgeon Syndicate. If you found value in this episode, no other surgeons are hungry to become job optional. You can help them by sharing this content today. I also want to serve you better, so I want to offer you two things. Number one, I'll be able to give you the content in an even better way if you can take a moment and leave an honest review of the show explaining what you like and what you don't. Number two, if you are a surgeon and serious about this, you don't want to do this on your own because you don't want to make mistakes with your money. I'd be happy to help. Schedule a call. We can make a plan. Looking forward to having you with me on the next episode.